0: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to Tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
1: Welcome to the Elkshake Podcast. I'm Dan Staten. This is your Blue Collar, do-it-yourself self-guided public land elk hunting learning curve resource where we leverage hunting to create more personal development. Our goal is to educate and encourage our listeners to become the best possible version of themselves through hard work, delayed gratification, and being accountable to themselves. Welcome to the Oak Podcast, guys. Sitting down with the Russ Meyer. If you don't know anything about him, you're about to learn that this guy is one of the most hardcore public land diy bear hunters there is and he's killed a pile of monster bears and he's super humble about it but he's been bow hunting for 40 years he's been married to his wife carol for i think like 30 years he's got two kids uh his oldest is jess and he's quite the bow hunter himself and russ is shot competitively uh in archery and he's done construction and currently now he works for outdoors international he's an owner and those guys connect hunters with hunts and they're not middlemen they take they get paid by the outfitters to basically book hunt so comes out of the outfitters marketing budget and we talk about that a little bit but really we dive into antelope we dive into elk and we dive into bear hunting and this guy's literally got it figured out so if you're into public land bear hunting this one's for you you can't bait in all the states that have spring seasons, but you can in Idaho and Wyoming, but uh, we'll we cover spot and stock as well. And honestly, I've killed half my bears spot and stock and half over bait. Not all the bears I've killed have been in a tree stand over bait. A lot of them are ground and pound where we set baits up without tree stands, but we figure out places that we can kind of glass the bait from three to 500 yards away. And you're gonna find out Russ does something similar, but even closer, it's really cool. And so, yeah, we just got done with the Shape Camp 3.0. That's the first camp of seven this year. We sold this one out. It was insane. I feel like we really made a difference in these guys' life, and we left them with really the blueprint for year-round success, year-round commitment and preparation for elk hunting and leveraging elk hunting and just everything we talk about here. So rewarding. I can't wait for Redmond, Oregon. That's coming up February 21st. We have some spots left, so let's get that sold out. If you've been on the fence and you're in Oregon anywhere, Get your ass to Elk Ship Camp 4.0. You will not regret it, and you will say to yourself at some point, man, I would have paid double for this. This was truly life-changing, and we're going to elevate everybody's game and crush that darn elk hunting learning curve. So let's get into the podcast with Mr. Russ Meyer out of Napa, Idaho. That's just outside of Boise. Dude's been bow hunting longer than i've been alive and i'm almost 40 years old so this guy's the real deal enjoy and thanks for listening to the elk shape podcast i haven't caught up with you in a long time man how was uh how was 2019
2: good you know we uh as far as the hunting side of things had i got out hunting so that was a blessing kind of the highlight was my kid yes he uh you know, we, we hunted a ton, you know, up until a couple of years ago and, you know, 17 to 19 obviously he's, you know, in that place. So we didn't hardly do any hunting together. Of course, it's tough on me, of course, but anyway, this year he came back strong there before September said he really wanted elk hunt. And, uh, up to that point, you know, two years or earlier. Or so at, you know, 16 going into 17, I had told him, Hey man, it's time for you to step up. If you want it, you want it. I'm not going to take care of it anymore. Right. As far as just being on top of him about getting ready. And anyway, so he, uh, he was on it and we had an amazing three day hunt in an area. We'd never hunted, which was a blessing because he'd never really given himself credit for a lot of his success. I think he'd got like 11 big game animals by the time he was 16, but he would just kind of say, well, you took me dad. And Mm -hmm. And i'm like dude you're a bow hunter getting seal in the deal is the deal you know everybody can you know hunt hard enough to get opportunity but you're you're a killer anyway so it was super cool this year area we'd never hunted we did it together looked at it together made decisions together through the whole i mean it was only three days but um both came home with bulls and i i and i came home with a lot of pride we belly crawled together and this was just flat sagebrush country we belly crawled together up on a bull and we got to 56 and this bull's laying there just chewing his cud and uh my mentality was we're waiting him out i don't care if we sit here 10 hours and Jess is adhd type (laughs) you know 30 minutes in (laughs) 30 minutes in dude i heard something i looked looked around this sagebrush really slow because the sage is only about three foot tall and he's out on his stomach in front of it and i was just like dude, what are you doing? And, you know, it was kind of like, what are you doing? And then I was just like, wait, you know, this is his hunt. And I just kind of, I'm laying on my back. I just gave him a real slow thumbs up. So I got to literally watch him slither up to 35 yards come up from behind the sagebrush and just heart shoot this bull in its bed while its eyes were closed it was epic (laughs) so that was that was the highlight
1: (laughs) man i can't wait for that day man that's gonna be so cool what are you guys doing in sagebrush country man i i know nothing about hunting elk and that stuff you know
2: i i I won't say i've had experience either other than you know higher mountain you know sage and, and desert stuff you know about a sun valley country and some of that stuff i've hunting them obviously your glass and in your spot stock and totally different than what I sort of picture is picturesque elk hunting but in this situation it was just uh let's just go do it and you know, Corey, my my business partner he'd hunted it before and he'd seen some elk and so we had some intel um but it was totally totally different and mm-hmm. not necessarily my cup of tea per se but You can't argue with success in full freezer, which was awesome with limited time, but, you know, I, I, I've been kind of questioning myself, do I want to go back there at all? Jess is pretty excited too. And that was awesome because Jess has never had the opportunity to really do much spot and stock, you know, in the late season, you know, deer, we do a lot of migration stuff and of course elk, you know, we're up in the, up in the higher country, timber bugling. Um, and we've antelope or blind hunting and so he's never had that opportunity so it was kind of and i haven't really done a lot of that i've never really been an early deer hunter um i mean granted i've spot and stalked a ton of critters in my time but just to go back and that's just the pure focus we never even i don't think i ever i never called one time um so it was just fun and do it right next to my kid it was you know i don't crawl as well as i used to
0: i've
2: ever been on my hands and knees for like 10 hours on antelope some years in one day you know and and just blowing it or whatever but
1: dude for real well here's the game plan today man like so been stoked to have you on i'm not gonna lie like i've mentioned your name several times while talking about bears because i think you're one of the guys who's kind of he's just kind of got some good methodology that we got to explore. But man, before we get into bears, let's back up. Let's let's get into your bow hunting history. Let's get into your job. I know what, I kind of have an idea what you do for a living. I want to get into that a little. And, and then I want to like, uh, I want to run through, and this isn't just specific to Idaho, y'all. But this is specific to like, I love antelope hunting. I want to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly there and uh and then get into a little bit of elk because this is the elk shape podcast and then we'll just hit the bear stuff we already i i posted today that i was going to have you on so i wanted to see if i could get some quick questions and we got a few to answer there too so it's cool let tell us about yourself russ i'm going to introduce you in the beginning but just give us the the overview of what you got going on in your day-to-day
2: yeah well yeah you know as far as work um you know growing up in uh in boise here in idaho uh, I guess history, you know, a little bit of history, I was fortunate enough to uh, grow up right at the foothills, the Boise foothills. You know, there's an area under Table Rock, which is kind of where the cross is. And there's another little rock formation mountain called Castle Rock. And I was uh, born and raised literally right underneath of it. So as a kid, man, I was from a very young age i can still recall you know jumping my neighbor's fence at amazon safari whether it was <laughs> whether it was grasshoppers with my red rider on to baiting sparrows by the swamp to you know hundreds of rock chucks in that country um, you know so growing up as a little adventurous hunter i was it was very obvious i was a freak hunter from the time i could even get out on my own and go do those things and fortunately i could you know um bow hunting wise you know at 10 years old on that same you know face of the mountain there um i set up and stalked in and waited out this rock chuck with my little fredbear recurve and got an arrow in that turkey and maybe five hours later probably i got him dug out of the hole and clubbed him and (laughs) Reclaimed <laughs> claimed my, my, my prize of my first, you know, I considered it a big game bow kill, but, you know, not so much. But at the time, I fell in love with the bow. Later on in life, once, you know, I was really involved with sports and all that stuff through high school. And and then, you know, after high school, I went to play some college ball. And the first year, I realized really quickly that it wasn't the same environment, I guess, as it was with my buddies that I grew up with and played football with since we were nine years old. And it was just a different element. I didn't know what I wanted to do with school, but I knew I wanted to bow hunt. And that really is what, uh, drove me back, started a construction company and started bow hunting my heart out, did a lot of competitive shooting through the nineties shot for Hoyt back then on the gold staff under old Jack head. And, just continued to live the bow life, kept me out of a lot of trouble, I know, and that's where my, my therapy was, my my time spent, you know, my, my um, competitiveness, you know, transitioned into competitive archery, and of course, you know, success on the mountain and figuring out how to do that and get that done. Um, Like, you know, you know, you probably know a lot of guys that strive to be bow hunters. Like once they finally got that break, the floodgates kind of opened and they started dissecting how it was that they were going to be successful with the critters. So my competitiveness went into that and I was super driven. I hear a lot of, well, I feel like a lot of people feel, you know, ask successful bow hunters, they want to know the secret recipe, right? It's like, well, how are you successful year after year after year? And, they look at it as it's there's some secret sauce which is great information's awesome you can get a lot of perspective but to me it's like even when i first started elk hunt man i uh i literally put my old aluminum frame on my tarp, my sleeping bag my cans of chili a couple snickers and i just went wherever i stopped i slept and listened to the elk in the night and just learned a ton from you just gotta be there right yeah um, but back to you know work. You know, I had a construction company in the Valley here, Treasure Valley. At least I knew, man, I could, uh, I ran an archery shop before that, uh, in Boise. And I learned really quickly that, you know, once they started giving me days off that weren't consecutive days,
0: <laughs> <you> know, <laughs>
2: that didn't last too long. And looking back, it was funny. I always feel like, you know, quitting those jobs to go elk hunting, you know, there's a reason for that. And, and I think where I am today is the reason. But, you know, I had a construction company for about 13 years, I guess, and uh, or 14, and 08 rolled around and kicked me in the butt pretty good. Made me realize I didn't have life figured out. Shortly thereafter, Corey, founder of Outdoors International, and then our, our previous uh, partner recruited me. Um, just from, I think my, you know, success as a hunter and, and, you know, maybe someone had mentioned that I was kind of in limbo because 08, like I said, you know, we, my partner and I at that time dissolved the construction company and I was just kind of flounder. And it's like, man, you know, I thought I had life figured out. I didn't. And, uh, shortly thereafter, like I mentioned, they, they called me and just out of the blue one day, and it was really ironic how it came together. I won't go into that story, but, you know, I prayed about it and, got to know Corey really well and, and found a, a level of comfort prior to that. I had been approached with guys from the industry, um, whether it was film or different stuff. And I just felt like, man, no way. I don't, I don't even want to jeopardize my passion of hunting and make up my job.
1: Amen. That's the last
2: thing I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, now in a perfect world, there's a dream, you know, some, you know, wouldn't it be cool if you could you know, make a living just to go hunting, but you know, that was pretty far-fetched to me at that time. And, again, I was just like, there's no way I want to make up my job. It's too special to me. Um, and I, you know, was could make my time. I could work 12, 15-hour days and take three days off. And I could make that happen. Um, I was always kind of a weekend warrior, but an extended weekend warrior, you know, because I yeah, yep. Uh, um, um So, anyway, like I said, I was approached, and I just, long and short, worked my way into ownership. I guess it's been about a year and a half. Corey and I bought out the third partner, and we're just full steam ahead. What we do is we facilitate hunting and fishing adventures around the world. So we're basically the guys that folks come to to say, hey, Russ, this is who I am, what I'm looking for. Um, It's a relationship model. We want to get to know our guys and through that conversation determine what's going to be the best hunt for them. You know, you and I both know there's a lot of different elk hunts there's a lot of different bear hunts so we really want to get to know our guys and and do our best to get them on the right hunt as far as our outfitter relationships that's about a lot of due diligence getting boots on the ground you know shaking these guys hands looking them in the eye and making sure there's somebody we want to send our people to and there that's a relationship model as well of course with accountability I mean our our outfitters want our guys to come back with a good report and We're definitely accountable to have guys show up with, you know, very realistic expectations um, and preparedness. Um, And our service is free. A lot of people feel like we're a middleman, and that's not the case. We're basically reimbursed from our Outfitters Marketing Budget. So, again, it's about, you know, building good, solid Outfitters and then uh, doing the best job we can to get our guys on the right hunt. And I tell a lot of the guys, it's like, hey, you know, you don't know me. I don't know you to this point but let's get you on a hunt and you're going to come back and tell me the good the bad the ugly and that's going to get you know me the opportunity to get to know you that much more as a hunter and really it is what you're looking for and so many hunts these guys have never been on right yeah and i tend to through most of the years i've definitely catered more toward the unguided guy because that's really me right yeah um So i've sent just hundreds of you know moose hunters and caribou hunters and and i've sent guys from to africa to new zealand to wherever but that's kind of where my passion lies is is alaska and a lot of the diy stuff but anyway so yeah we have a number of agents spread out throughout the us some really good guys we try to surround ourselves with like-minded folks and just do the best job we can. And, you know, there is no perfect hunt. You get the calls where the guy's like, I've been hunting 30 years and I'm ready to pay an outfitter and go kill that big bull. And I'm like, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, that's, that's, you're not buying an animal, man. This is hunting. And, uh, we could talk about a high fence, but you know, that's, that's up to you. Um, anyway, so it's been a really fun journey for me. There's definitely been a balance when you talk about, you know, has it affected my, my personal passion? It has to some degree you know, in, in, in Idaho, but, you know, anymore with hunting pressure and, and, you know, and I've spent a lot of years doing it here and I've had some amazing memories, but I think I'm ready to, I'm trying to talk myself into really, you know, taking advantage of the opportunity I have to go see places around the world. And like this August, uh, end of August, I had the opportunity to go to far Northern Arctic Canada, none of it. And I got to hunt with the Inuit community in a huge area that never been sport hunted. Ooh you know, it wasn't the snowmobile, you know, winter muskox hunt. It was, uh, late August. It was just beautiful weather. There was no snow. You know, we kind of had some four wheelers and mainly boats and, uh, I got to do it my way, which I kind of, you know, set up that way. We just happened to see a big old rogue bull from camp and they gave me a boat ride across. And, uh, the, the guide stayed, I don't know, a couple hundred yards behind me. And, uh, I followed that sucker for a couple miles probably it was gale force winds in fact i had him at 42 yards broadside at full draw but the wind was so stinking hard my arrow was blown up against the re- containment bar of my qad so i couldn't shoot then and finally got on him and got an arrow in him but
1: oh my gosh yeah man i do not like shooting in gale force winds ever what, what do you do so did you have to uh, just get closer or just find a spot where the topography uh, shielded you from those gusts?
2: Yeah, it was more, uh, it was really rolling um, and solid rock there where we were. It was really different. It, it It was neater than heck, but the rocks were a little bit noisy. It was like giant kind of shale slab, almost like a giant shale slide, but relatively flat and rolling so he'd get out of sight a little bit I'd loop around long story short he ended up finally cutting into the wind which allowed me to have more of a you know front wind with a slight you know cross wind rather than a direct cross wind so I was able to get up I think my first shot was like 52 yards or something and got a good arrow in him and and ended up uh, getting on him again and you know they're a big old cool critter I never really had you know Big aspirations to to hunt a musk ox, but once the opportunity came about, of course, I was I was super excited. And then once to to get hands on an animal like that and really touch it and check it out, I mean, I feel blessed. And and the whole cultural experience, the I mean, I was sitting on the bank of the arctic ocean basically eating raw caribou ribs that had been sitting there for four days on the on the in the rocks with this inuit family that was on holiday out and they got a two-week holiday and they uh spend it out there hunting you know it's just really stinking cool so the culture side of it the experience it was just amazing so
1: so with your business you and Corey uh are now running it just you two uh as far as owners go and you're going to be very busy. I would say from about here, going forward till summer, just getting guys lined out on their hunts, probably stay pretty busy year round. Where do you get to kind of hang it up and check out and get, get hunting yourself?
2: The hunt side of it with me is still really, you know, um, get out when I can type of deal weekend warrior in it. Of course here, you know, extended weekends. Um, You know, in the past, my big hunt would always be one-week elk hunting, and that was my nine-day hunt. You know, for years, I'd never hunted more than nine days ever, and uh, obviously with with this, you know, career, I've had the opportunity to go on more extended, you know, 11-, 12-day moose hunt here or there, but it's still, you know, we're, we are, we we work year-round, so it's not like I ever, sure, I would love to take the whole month of September off and just go chase elk. But, you know, to this point, opportunities sort of pop up. With the, with the work, it's been a little bit frustrating, especially with my buddies I used to hunt hard and heavy with. It's really difficult for me to make a plan, like right now make a plan for September, because things will pop up yep. within the company where it makes – business sense for me to get boots on the ground whether i hunt or not and see these places so i can touch them and feel them and be able to speak of them firsthand i I don't feel like i'm a great salesman but i feel like i can speak from the heart well and for me to get there and just see it and touch it then i can speak of it. like i literally just before before we connected here i was one of our outfitters is is hooking up like a million acres in mexico and he wants me to bring some guys to get down there and chase some uh some, some mule deer and, uh, Carmen whitetail around. So we were talking about that and that I have to try to put that together in the next couple of weeks. So, <laughs> so it's difficult for me to really make a, a plan and, 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 uh, at least with my hunting, you know, so I'm, my hunting, I'm kind of winging it whenever I can. And then the bigger hunts, I'll try to do a couple of those a year, whether it's, you know, like the none of it. Um, last year I went to Colorado on a drop camp and took some clients and, and then I went to none of it. Went to, took took a group of guys to B C last spring for some spot and stock bear hunting, which in my opinion, you can't just cannot beat B C. It's pretty awesome. I
1: bet. I I I'm gonna pick your brain. I got a couple hunts I wanna do for bear. Um all right, so let's talk antelope, dude. Uh I've hunted antelope, Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. And specifically for Idaho, everywhere from the Waihees to the Sun Valley to the eastern it's pretty you know it's not Wyoming I'll first say that right now like uh, Idaho antelope is not Wyoming but it's good uh, but it's competitive and I've been burned uh, by other hunters I've been in verbal altercations with other hunters over ground blinds and all that kind of jazz so I want to get your perspective on the good the bad the ugly of hunting antelope in Idaho we'll start there so how, how long you been doing it what have you learned what's the good the bad the ugly
2: you know, I started hunting antelope, let me think. I shot my first antelope in 1992, and I hunted them for two years before I got one. Yep. Um, so there was definitely, the first year was more like, well, I'm going to go run around the desert and check things out, and, <laughs> and just a couple weekends here and there, and they definitely intrigued me. Um, the second year... You know, I started learning about blind hunting and water holes, and, and it was just covering country, man. That there's a lot of country in the Hawaii desert that I have stomped. You know, I, I think I I talk about this often. You know, now you can literally crack a beer, pull up Google Earth, and find every stinking water hole in the country. Download it, and it takes you to it. And back in my day, no, mm-hmm. you had topographical maps and you walked your heart out to find those remote locations. I've always been in the mindset of get away from the other hunters. So anyway, um, I finally, uh, the second year we found, it was actually a water trough and, uh, there was antelope tracks on it and we dug a hole and piled up sagebrush and roasted our butts off and, uh, never did get an antelope, but it wasn't until that third year that I, uh, Actually went deeper, found some other locations, found an active hole, and ended up uh, taking my first antelope. It was probably a a six-and-a-half-inch little buck, and I was on cloud nine, you know. Um, So since then, I've taken a ton of antelope, both spot and stalk and blind. You know, again, I guess my mentality is to find those remote locations that you don't see pressure. I mean, one of my main holes I've hunted, you know, I was— shoot, I don't know, 15 years. And now I'm just starting to see hunter encroachment. So I, I had a pretty darn good thing going. It was tough to get to. Um, Now there's getting to be some some, some more boots in there. You know, the roads that were uh, almost hard to follow two track are now much more pounded down with all the four wheelers and just people exploring and kind of going back to what I mentioned earlier. It's like, many of my places I had, I, one of my elk spots I hunted for 13 years and never saw a person. And now it's, there's, you know, three camps in there from back East, you know, it's just, it's just changing. And, uh, you know, as hunters, we just adapt and move on and try something else. Um, even some of my bear spots are, are getting encroached on pretty good. And I'm the type of guy, it's like, I'd rather see one elk and no people than, you know, 50 elk and five people. So I'm always going to, be the guy that's going to be okay. It's not okay. <laughs> you know, begrudgingly going and finding something new, kind of like Jess and I did this year. You know, but yeah sometimes that's what pays off, man. Because you go to those new areas, and then you're driven. What's over the next ridge? What's over the next ridge? And I'm very adamant about learning your country, especially elk hunting. You know, if you know your topography and terrain, you're you're at a big advantage to success. But anyway, back to antelope. So I spent a lot of years uh stomping country finding those remote holes man you find those little springs but the thing about antelope hunting is it's always evolving in the sense of feed and water you know what i have found is feed um there's water everywhere whether you know it or not but the feed i think is in my opinion with what i see on the ground and what they're eating and what they're doing dictates where kind of the mass the more the more numbers are right Mm -hmm. um but you find that area that 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 just reaps that consistency and that's what you kind of go to but even now you know still you know it's I like plan a through d pretty much every year so when pretty much every year I try to go scout and there's certain areas I scout and then you know depending on how many days usually antelope hunting usually I have two days that's maybe three and especially now with the, with the regulation changes and stuff, once they went to draw, you know, for the, for the early tag, I've only ever drawn that twice. So now I've always been stuck to September 10th or now September 1st. So it always unfortunately ends up being a bonsai hunt, which is a bummer for me. I used to be able to, I so looked forward to taking my boys, you know, in that August because they're not in school yet. We could go spend a week in the desert or, you know, four days, whatever. And I got fishing holes and swimming holes and Indian camps and artifacts and all the Mm -hmm. things that I love about the Hawaii desert. And, uh, I love the evening in the desert, man. It's one of my favorite, but it's turned into kind of a, kind of a run and gun type of deal, unfortunately. But, you know, again, water holes, you know, Sun Valley country and, uh, that was a lot of fun because I'd be screaming bulls in the morning and stalking antelope throughout the day. And, you know, I had the opportunity on a couple of really nice bucks, you know, just through the course of glassing and stalking and crawling and shooting. There was one herd that I hunted of, there was 92 goats in this herd. It was amazing. And I was tree stand hunting them. I was, they were on springs and finally just the spot and stock paid off. And I ended up sticking like a 78 incher out of that
1: really wow
2: one of my favorite it's just it's antelope to me is just you just gotta spend a lot of time and you gotta figure out year from year year to year you know consistent water holes if you're gonna blind hunt them and like i said it just changes every stinking year you know it
1: yeah no it just does like
2: anything man it's time in the field um it's time in the field and, and learning your country
1: my Idaho experience in the last three or four years has been increased hunting pressure um, kind of kind of having some confrontations over you know spots uh, they got that 10-day rule where you got to, you can put your blind out you know on BLM ten days before the opener in fact first time I ever learned that rust I was actually living in Meridian and I found a sick water hole and I didn't when there's no Google earth so I found it on a dirt bike in the desert. And, uh, I was like, okay, at first light on the 10th day before the season opens, I'm going to be at the water hole setting it up. And I rode my dirt bike in the desert and I roll up and it's just getting daylight. And there's two guys in their pickup trucks, sleeping in the back of their trucks, their blinds already set up on the water hole. And they informed me that you can set your blind up at midnight. And I was just like, ah, and, uh, I just learned the hard way. Those guys ended up tagging out opening day. And then uh, I moved in, and nothing ever came in after that. Of course, but last couple of years it's been just uh, trying to get away from people, and uh, you know, a lot of my ground blind hunting is over slides to ag ground, and that's been really competitive. So I've just gone to spot and stock, uh, just less antelope, but uh, more of an opportunity to really stock those cagey animals, and uh, had some good success. But I'll tell you what, man. There's not a more frustrating animal to hunt with a bow, spot and stock, in my opinion, than antelope.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would agree. You spend so much time in that heat belly crawling and it just they can see so darn well. Yeah. I have had yeah, my share of I've had a lot more failures than success, I care on how to (laughs) spot stock a thousandfold. No Uh, doubt. Like I said, I I think I've only I think I've only spot and stock two goats. Yeah. But I spend a lot of time, you know, on water holes and, and that. So
1: I think that's more productive and I think there's a lot of nuance to shooting an antelope out of a watering hole. Maybe you could talk about that before we move on to elk and like one thing I've learned and, and I shoot a Matthews now, Russ, is that I put the sixty pound mods on my bow, you know, instead of seventy five for antelope. Uh, sure I lose a little speed, but man, I can pull that bow back very slow. And I can hold it a lot longer. So for me, I've been able to draw way early on these antelope because it seems like your shot opportunity is like very narrow and you have to pick. So talk a little bit about the nuances of, of hunting antelope from a ground blind.
2: Well, the nuances, one of the things that stands out to me, um and, it, and it's been a blast, you know, I've had some friends that I've taken You know, and and they're successful bow hunters. They they've 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 been successful. And I've always talked about the the situation with antelope, it's like, you know, you need to first of all practice out of your blind because several people I've taken have shot holes through my blind. It's like, dude, get your sights up to the top of the sight window, right? So you need to practice and get in the mindset of that. Uh, but I think in any with antelope you know, antelope and big bears, those are probably the critters that get me the most worked up. Um, and to think about it, you think, what do you mean? You're just sitting in a box and they just come in and you shoot them. And it's like, okay, all right, let's go. You know, one of my buddies, Zach Owens, I'll call him out. <laughs> he's going. He's
1: oh, gonna... <laughs> God. That's uh, Mr. Beyond the Backcountry, y'all, for on Instagram. That guy's hilarious. Yeah.
2: So, you know, Zach, he's, he's pretty confident. And uh, <laughs> long story short. We, we, I took him out to one of my spots and I can't, I can't remember if it was f- four bucks, I think that were missed. Yeah. <laughs> now, granted it, 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 well, another situation is, uh, uh, well, I'll talk about that in a bit, but anyway, there's something about being in a blind. Um, and it's kind of like bear hunting, you know, your heart starts pounding, But any situation where it's kind of an ambush thing, I mean, some guys, you know, everybody's a little bit different. But, man, you're sitting there, it's dead quiet, and you just, your heart's getting pounding and pounding louder and louder, and it's something you've always wanted to do. But there ain't nothing controlled about it in most situations, you know. It is a controlled situation, and the antelope are coming in. They do make you nervy, like you said. You know, you have a short window, usually. Lots of times they're in a herd, they're they're in and out, they're head bobbing and i'm just like hey just relax you know as soon as you start see that throat moving they're sucking it in chances are they're going to be there long enough for you to shoot um i'm not so much into pre-drawn i think that'll amp up a newer antelope hunter more than just kind of waiting for the perfect opportunity go through your shot process and execute your shot but uh it's been awesome just just to see the adrenaline, which that's what we live for, right anyway, yep, so
1: certainly. so
2: just to be there and experience that um so Zach by the end of it, he you you've never you know he was so frustrated he literally's like, I'm done, I just gotta regroup, I gotta get my head on and uh literally we ended up leaving that afternoon and he didn't, 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 didn't shoot a goat, had multiple opportunities. He just pulling his hair out and we're going across this big plateau and, and there's this kind of this rock rim that I often see goats off of. So I pulled up and I stopped before I dropped and Zach's behind me. Sure enough, there's a herd of does. So he pulls up behind me and I was like, what's up? You know, I, he asked me and I said, oh, there's some goats right there. And uh, he, he literally had his shirt off <laughs> <laughs> and he's like i'm going for it I, I'm, I'm going for it you know i'm gonna go whack one of those does so i just kicked back picked my feet up on my four-wheeler and i just kicked back and just watched him cruise across this big plateau it was probably i don't know six seven hundred yards or so and i see him sneaking up to the rim of it pretty soon the stinking buck appears and it's a nice buck so i get to watch zach just come up to the rim and he's peeking over, and this buck comes up, and I'm just watching him with my binos, and I see him come to full draw, and I want to say it was 55 yards, and he just heart shoots this goat, right? Yep. So here he had just missed four shots from probably 35 and under, and... Now he just smokes this stud goat at fifty-five yards, and I—he finally got back to me. And I was like, "God loves you, dude, because <laughs> you are the luckiest sucker." And he said the same thing. But of course, you know, ten minutes later, he's froggy. Yeah, he shot a big old buck.
1: Exactly. Well, you know, it just speaks to the difference between an ambush scenario and a spot and stock scenario where they're moving. Man, you're you're stuck in a blind and you're just waiting, waiting, and then this—it happens. You go from zero to a million. And you can lose your crap. And then another thing to point out is, man, even this summer, I've killed several goats out of a blind. But I set up a blind in the heat of July, and I'm shooting broadheads at about 50 and 60 yards. And I was grouping low, and I even, <laughs> I even got online, Russ, and was trying to like Google search, like, what am I doing wrong here? And eventually, I just filmed myself inside my blind shooting, and I was my posture was just dog shit in the blind. I was sitting on a chair, and I just was slouching when I was pulled back. It was affecting my anchor, so as soon as I puckered up my butt and got upright and vertical, I started grouping broadside like our um, bullseyes again. So, it your posture will affect the way you shoot a bow in a blind, and if you you have to go out and do perfect practice and then hope you can keep your crap together when it actually happens, it's so much fun, man. I love. I recommend everybody to do it, uh, just not not in my spots. Go over to uh, Wyoming eastern montana <laughs> yeah,
2: antel- yeah antelope ross awesome. even my buck this this year you know it, it, you know once it dies i don't ever see it dying but man you you lose that rush and all that and then to me it's like why you want to hunt but this year i had gotten out early and i'd hit several spots i covered like 70 miles in the desert and i found this stud buck at a really really remote hole and i ended up long story short i ended up going ahead and hunting one of my main holes and I passed up probably 14 shots on bucks just nothing you know big and uh, a buddy of mine was out there hunting kind of a, this little pond rock deal that held water and I could actually see him with binos in that location just a natural place that would hold water if it rained and stuff and he had some opportunities but it just didn't ever happen so I let him hunt in my hole that day because I, I sat there all day thinking about that other big buck. Exactly. It's probably about two and a half, two and a half hour hauling, butt four wheeler across the desert to get to it. But the next day I had Danny just hunting there and I got on my wheeler and hauled butt. And sure enough, man, that it was a, it was a one day set, set it up. And first thing in the morning, I mean, sun's coming up and I see that buck, like probably a mile and a half out. I'm just like, come on, Lord, please God, please God. (laughs) Anyway, long story short, he ends up coming around and, and he's froggy on the water, makes a big circle behind me. And the water was super big last year. So I literally had parked my four-wheeler to cut it off at the main hole, but there's kind of a stringer of water and they typically will water at the far end of it where it kind of starts as, as it, as it, it, you know, recedes in or whatever, they would just work their way into the main hole. But sure enough whether he didn't like the blind he worked around behind me and he's just i see him come off the rim behind me and he's just staring at my four-wheeler my four-wheeler's sitting there on the water and he starts walking towards it and he stops and then he sure enough here he comes now he's veered toward me and i'm like yes you're you're, you're in trouble we stops perfectly broadside at 45 yards just money but my four-wheeler is literally right behind him. And I'm like, you sucker. Anyway, he ended up finally coming in, started the water and the the smaller buck was with him. Of course he comes up and covers his vitals, you Mm. know, comes up right next to him. So just another situation where your heart's like, don't, 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 you know, it's, you're, you're praying for the opportunity. And you know, if he spins and blows, it's probably over. And and anyway, he the big buck ended up taking with his head down like two more steps, so now I've got him. You know, total vital. The grass was his dead center of his body horizontally, so all I could see was like his shoulders, his back, and basically right down to the transition line in color. So I draw back and I'm, I'm working against this. Don't lift your head. And, and, and I literally like shoot in my head. So I flinch, right? Yep. <laughs> I flinch twice and I'm like, dude, and, and really that's bow hunting to me. It's like those extra two seconds to wrap your trigger, execute your shot is all the difference in the world versus getting on it and punching it. Right. Yes. So my brain shot twice and I flinched twice and finally I gathered myself really wrapped my trigger and just focused right on the grass line and just pulled and like 11 ringed him in the, you know, if he was a, if he was the McKenzie target and he went 20 yards and fell over, ended up being 46 yard shot. So anyway, love it. The, now, the, the, the rush and controlling that. That's, that's just what it's about. Right.
1: Well, let's talk. Let's talk a little archery for a second. I, I promise guys we're going to get to bears, but so You said something there we got to dig in on, man. Like, so for me, bow hunting for 19 years, self-taught, there were some shitty habits I had to break. And even now, um, this is more than you need to know, but I'm actually slowly switching to left hand because I'm left eye dominant and I didn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can shoot with both eyes open, uh, right-handed, uh, but my left eye is so much better, honestly. So I'm gonna. I ordered a left-handed bow. It's getting here. I'm gonna document my transition. Um, I make no guarantees that I'll be shooting left-handed for Spring Bear. I want to give myself plenty of time, but to. But I. want to talk about releases. So I own all the all the releases, uh, throughout the years. I've bought them all. Um, but at the end of the day, I usually hunt with a Scott, XT. It's a hook release, and. I put my second knuckle wrapped in a fixed position around it and I pull through the shot and I truly get surprise releases uh, while hunting. Uh, but during the year in a lot of the content I create, I, I'm i shooting a Carter release here, a Carter release there. I got all the releases, man. Hinges, tension, thumb button, you name it. And guys just like are always interested to know about that stuff and I just do it to keep myself honest. That's what I've always told them. Is just I like to keep myself honest. But like from your perspective, doing archery for 40 years and shooting competitively for Hoyt, what did you shoot in your target days, and what do you hunt with now?
2: Okay, um,
1: I've,
2: <clears throat> I guess from the very beginning, you know, back when literally the first handheld release came out, it was this big. Pistol grip, plastic handled beast. I shot it open sights with my old golden eagle. And uh, so that was my first, first release, literally the first release on the market, which was, which was pretty amazing. I eventually got into sights and realized, man, this is awesome. But, you know, through the years, I've always been a trigger guy, even in my competitive, you know, when I was shooting with Hoyt on the gold staff and doing that deal I just was always very comfortable with the trigger release. I never experienced target panic. I could, I could shoot it. Right. And I was a hundred percent confident, but I, sh- I was one of those guys that would go into the bow chiefs with a membership at, you know, 10 o'clock at night. And I would come out as the sun's coming up, I could shoot for eight hours straight. And a lot of my buddies were like, how can you do that? And I'm like, I just love it. Right. So yeah, that's really what gave me uh, you know, uh, competitive edge was just my passion for the flight of the arrow and shooting my bow and, and being super accurate. Like you and I both know it, like you can be good and out to 60 shoot a seven inch group to bring that 60 yard group to a two inch group consistently. That's a big step, right? So if you want to be, it's just like anything, it's a massive commitment. But as far as the trigger release, I've just always been that trigger guy later on, later on, um, cause I never shot, you know, I, I tried back tension and I've tried back then. And it just, I, I just like, I don't need it. Right. I, there's no reason for it. And I truly believe a good trigger shooter has an advantage in, in hunting, in an overall hunting situation, right. Whether it's a moving shot or a, or whatever. Now, granted, some guys, um, just flat shoot better with a back tension and, or a thumb. I mean, a thumb, you can still punch it. If you hook and wrap and and back tension it properly, um, you know, you're you're more or less shooting a back tension with a thumb, obviously. Right. But I I think a lot of people are still punching it, but they just don't punch it as bad. As you know, some guys with target panic, they cannot shoot a caliper, which is great. There's options, right? So that's true. me, I've always been a caliper guy. But later on, when I stopped shooting as much, um, and especially once I got older… My eyes started going worse. Um, I didn't shoot as much, so I didn't have that just muscle memory of, of shooting. I started battling things, and then I did start experience, and I finally realized, oh, this is that target panic crap people are talking about, you know. Um, so, I immediately started looking into, you know, how to combat that, and definitely back tension was the answer to that. Um, I picked up an old Solution Two Carter way back when, Mm -hmm. and, you know, sometimes I hit the range and I'd start shooting. And If I felt a little off, I'd just grab that back tension and instantly 10 shots later, you remind yourself how you're supposed to shoot your bow
1: Yes, and,
2: you know, your bow arm follow through all that. And then I just throw my, my caliper on and then I just bring my groups right in. Uh, But through the years, man, I think there's, it's huge advantage to have multiple releases. I have a bag of Carter's. I think I have like five handhelds or six, maybe. (laughs) Yes. And, um, you know, I like the thumb. I like to set them up where it is more of a back tension. Some I kind of like just using as a more of a thumb release, you know, more of a pull with the thumb. I, 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 uh, so as a tool, I don't care if you are a trigger guy, you cannot, you could. it's so advantageous to have those, if you were going to pick one definitely a back tension in my opinion like all of mine a back tension with a safety the last thing you want is to chip a tooth or bloody your nose you know Mm -hmm. so if you don't shoot them a lot it's pretty easy to get lazy and and have a misfire with a true back tension but you know i i have uh, a few different you know back tension with with the with the safety which you know, again, it just tunes you up really quick. Any in, in reality, you're probably better off every time you go to the range, in my opinion, to pull that sucker out, execute, you know, ten good shots with the back tension, and then throw your caliper on. As far as calipers, I've shot a ton of different ones through the years. I was always a Scott guy for the most part, forever. The, you know, the mongoose and the mini goose, and and all the ones before that's Cobra, and but for the last lots of years in fact I was at a train to hunt competition down in southern Idaho and there was a fella in the group that was behind me and you know I think it was like a three-person group or whatever and I had really got a mindset on that particular tournament for certain reasons and I had about five weeks to train for it so I put a lot into that ended up going down and basically beating everybody you know the young 20 year old studs and so I kind of took the cake on that not saying I'm special just saying it was cool to to get it done but anyway so at the end of it a fellow walks up to me and we're talking and he introduces himself and it was it was uh Forrest Carter Mm, and you know he kind of like hey you know I'd like you to try my releases and you know since then we've had a relationship and and uh kind of got me on his staff deal there which has been a blessing and so I've tried a lot you know most of the carters and with me i have a big hand i have a round face and the release that worked best for me was the like mike and i went as far as to put an extension on it called the thumb shoe that carter offers so i have a really big hook which really allows me to feel it when i'm wrapping that sucker and through the years i went to a stiffer uh trigger pull you know for years and years and years i set my releases as light as i possibly could which was advantageous for the way i shot for competitive archery but on two different occasions i spent hours crawling through a foot of snow finally only to when i had the opportunity to shoot that big buck go to wrap my trigger and my hands were frozen so i couldn't feel it and my arrow was in the air you know 10 feet over the deer's back <laughs> so you know i learned from that and i started uh, started getting more into focusing on you know more of a back tension shot which there is advantage to that rather than kind of you know s- punching it Now, granted you can get good at punching but to to either combine the two and more towards the back tension um You know, I started stiffing them up and then with all the ones, you know, releases I was shooting, that Carter to me is just a really nice, crisp, crisp release. I've just had super good luck with them for the last, you know, probably going on eight years or so. But
1: yes, anyway,
2: I really like the Carters and that like Mike's my 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 go to release and probably will continue to be for for however long.
1: No doubt. Well guys, I know you've been waiting for bears. We're going to get into it. Um, to set the stage, uh, Russ has killed so many bears, he probably couldn't tell you how many. Um, certainly probably double mine. I don't know how many I've killed. I'd say a lot, but not compared to you. But uh, I'm hooked, Russ. I'm addicted. I I don't even turkey hunt unless I'm taking my wife or kids uh although the last thing i killed was a turkey but that was in the fall uh so that doesn't count man like so bears is where it's at you're sh- you're shooting sharp sticks you're in the mountains you're reading wind you're glassing you have a backpack on you're covering ground you're hunting out west it's the best uh, it's the best we have a series of questions i'm gonna just start going through these questions in no particular order we'll see what it gets us to um and then if they none of them ask what i want to know i'm gonna ask that too so let's get started uh this one is from Spencer Shan Holzer. He says, hey, Dan, do you guys do any scouting before spring bear starts up? What's the strategy used to locate bear in the spring?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> like most of us, and I'm sure you're in the same boat, when you talk about scouting for bear in the spring, we're just chomping at the bit to be able to get places and hoping the spring comes sooner than later as far as snow, right? Um, so as far as scouting to me, um, you, in most, most situations with me, you really, I I can never get into the areas I'd want to scout anyway, preseason because there's snow. Um, if we're talking about baiting or obviously baiting, um, with me, I'll, I'll know areas more on maps. Again, I'm focusing on where people aren't going to be. And that's evolved through the years. And we can touch on that a little bit as far as my backstory on bear hunting. But I don't see pre scouting bears. If anything, I'm looking at elevations uh, when I'm thinking about going into new areas and uh, elevations based on snow. And I'm thinking about access and I'm thinking about a lot of things because in the West here in Idaho, I mean, there's a lot of places you can go where bears live. So it's not a matter of, is there a bear that lives there? It's how am I going to get there in the spring? And that's just going to be trial and error, and it's going to change every single year. So not really any – my scouting is, you know, on the maps and on the elevations and access to that spring, maybe getting in there in the fall, or I've been there in the fall, and I'm finding locations that I hope – i'm super super anal about my bait location i mean i'll spend hours evaluating a hillside a canyon uh you know whatever it may be before i finally decide on my set um so that's again i want to do that when i can get in there and often it's in the fall when i'm either maybe in the elk hunting or just going for a hike and checking things out so spring scouting um I pretty much know where I'm already going to be wanting to go as far as spot and stock. Of course, again, that's just elevation where the snow is, you know, those bears come out of hibernation, they drop down, they're eating the grass. And as the snow line creeps, the bears are creeping. Um, So to me, it's, you're going to, chances are the season's going to be open if you have an April 15th opener, like here in Idaho. And to me, I'm going to wait till then so I can have a bow in my hand in case I catch that stud, you know, and early on, that's a great time because if you can find a big bear that's just right out of hibernation, they will stay close to those dens for a long time. So you can kind of be a little methodical on, you know, rather than feeling like you need to rush in those big bears, they're going to stay pretty tight to a certain area for a while before they start roaming. So I would be scouting with my bow.
1: Yeah, I can't even get into bear places. Usually April 15th, I'm not bear hunting. Um, I can't get into wherever I want to go. That's just the reality. And then once the season's open, there's always going to be a bow on my back. Um, when I'm trying, so I've probably killed half bears over bait, half spot and stock. And I would say that um, finding places where you can glass three to six miles is really important so if you are going to do some cyber scouting maybe find vantage points that you can get to where even if it's lower elevation that's probably best early season so you can get there through the snow and just sit there and glass on your ass for six hours and looking over lots of country and repeat looking over lots of country because a bear will just pop up out of nowhere Um, in a lot of my areas the bears are going to hibernate in certain canyons which is crazy. Like I think there's bears in every drainage in Idaho. I really do. Most of Idaho, but there are certain drainages that just are conducive to where bears want to call it um, call it a year and hibernate. Those are good to find out. That's going to take a long time to figure those out. Um, but I don't think the scouting for bears is really like a thing. I think you're hunting. You could be shed hunting and. One thing I always say is when I'm looking for sheds, I find bears. And when I'm looking for bears, I find sheds. So it's kind of a win-win. But uh, we're going to get into your baiting because that's huge. Uh, And so this next question is from Red Baron 307. I'm fairly new to hunting bears and baiting still. What is the best way to start a new bait site as far as what to put in the barrel, etc.? And also, what do you look for when you are finding the location you want to put your barrel in? Here you go.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty broad question. Um, the truth is I've never been a barrel guy for kind of a number of reasons for that. So I don't know if we want to dive into, cause that kind of goes back to, you know, I guess my, the way I do things with bear hunting.
1: Yeah. Let's just do um, that. Let's run your playbook.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, as far, okay. Where would I start? I guess in, in reference to barrels, for whatever reason, I've never been a barrel guy. I kind of don't like it cosmetically and it's just me um the other thing that's that's just not conducive for for barrel hunting the way i do it is i'm i'm very i started when i started bear hunting i learned fairly quickly a few things one of the main things is i don't ever want to be where there, where a hound hunter could ever get to so <laughs> that, that was trial and error and i learned fairly quickly that I want to be at that bait site as little as possible. I mean, little as possible. A lot of people are surprised to, to know that I've never owned a trail camera in my life. And there's a few few reasons for that, um, and, and specifically to bear hunting, is I don't ever want to be at that bait again once I bait it. Um, and in doing so, what I've learned to do is, as far as containing the bait, obviously it's about finding you know the topography or or the the actual bait site and maybe it's a a rock formation or 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 timber or whatever and if i don't have that i'll build it i'll build a very solid trough that bears cannot access bait from behind because that's the first thing they're going to do is dig their way in and access it from behind and you're stuck without an opportunity at a bear so i'm going to put all the advantage all the advantage I can into having that bear be right where I want them to be. But as far as the 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 structure I build, I'm building it obviously to contain it, obviously to position the bears where I want them to be for a good shot, and then also to protect it um from rain, snow, getting washed out. So
1: what about birds, Russ? How do you keep the crows off your bait? Yeah, this kind of goes to what I'm what I'm
2: what I'm building up to is i really typically have a super solid roof Mm -hmm. um and that's usually just deadfall limbs pine boughs i really put a lot of time and effort into building that up and finishing it with pine boughs just to kind of keep the water running off which you know surprisingly i've never had and i know there's certain areas and those are the ones i tend to stay away from where maybe there's been bite bait sites for years and years and years. And those crows are so, are so, you know, trained from a young age, this is where you go to eat all day in the spring. Um, I've never, ever had bird issues ever. So it's never even been a concern of mine, but I, I account the fact of the way I do it, um, whether they don't find it, it's not as easily accessible to them. They don't like having to go up underneath stuff. I don't know. Um, but again, I'm really protecting it mostly um, from the weather, from from the rain. Um, I've had baits where, that have just, you know, bred baits that have just been washed away. Um, and I put a ton of effort into it. And it, I know it made a big, had a big effect on, you know, just the number of bears. And, and um, so I changed, you know, that was another year where I started going with the roof stuff. And it really made a big difference. But to me back to barrels obviously you can only put so much bait in a barrel now granted it protects it you know the bears eat it slower Um, so there's some good food for thought to that And again this is my area and how I hunt so you know if you talk about Canada or different places where there's huge concentrations and the barrels just what it is to slow them slow them down my mindset's completely different to that when I set a bait I take a minimum of 2,000 pounds So I take a ton literally of bait and I get as remote as I can and we could get into, you know, Canyon locations and the, you know, winds of course, and then you know sunrises and and sunsets and all those things that I factor into where I want to be. But as far as the specific bait, um, yeah, take a minimum of 2000 pounds. It's protected. I don't bait until it's totally built, totally done. And then, uh, and then once everything's totally buttoned up, I'll set my bait, and then after that, I'll I'll take my my stink buckets, which I'm a pretty adamant about, you know, rock chucks and ground squirrels, which I still love hunting with my bow. So I pile up a ton of those, bag them a certain way, and uh, bury them. So I've got year-old stink. And then I'll have fresh stink as well, but that's obviously the last thing that goes up because once you pop that bucket, you know, you're pulling it up. I usually have at least two bags depending on the canyon and country. Sometimes I'll set a stink bag in a certain location because I feel like the wind's going to, you know, suck this canyon or, or whatever. But my goal is to just get as much scent out to, to draw those bears in obviously, um, But then also a big thing that I just, I've always done, I mean, I'll take a two gallon weed sprayer and I'll have a concoction in that, in that two gallon weed sprayer. And just before I typically hang my stink, stink bags, I'm pumping and dousing the heck out of that area. So when I leave that location, it is ready to rip. And I don't ever want to go back. I don't want to be near that, that bait site. Now to talk about, no oh, tree standing obviously i've shot a lot of bears out of tree stands but in more recent years several years now i've turned my baits into stock baits which is very advantageous to shoot that big bear um, um and it just adds another element right rather than sitting on top of it praying that the winds don't swirl that big bear comes down he catches senia the first time it only takes one time and that big bear either is nocturnal, he may, he may boogie for good. You don't know. So I'm going to do everything in my power to never leave my scent there. Let that big bear find it, come in, hoard it, go in and out of that sucker. I usually don't go back for at least nine or 10 days. And, uh, on a new bait, it might be two weeks, depending on what I feel about that area and the population of bears and
1: mm-hmm. whatever.
2: But anyway, um kind of jumping around a little
1: well no let me um let me put you back against the wall and then you can say no comment if you if I'm diving too deep on you but um first question how the hell do you get 2,000 pounds of food in a remote location are you using horses and ATVs are you doing several trips of hauling food first what's that look like
2: well for a number of years and kind of going back a little bit, when I mentioned, you know, I, I, I learned fairly early I never want to be somewhere that, that, and I don't have anything against houndsmen at all, but I definitely don't want to work my tail off to have somebody chase that big bear off my bait, you know, or go sit and hounds run. by. I literally, back then, I literally, uh, the day before, I had six bears come in, and I took my buddy up for him to shoot his first bear, and I made him pass on several bears because there was a nice one I knew that was going to come in. Well, that next morning... Hounds ran bears right by my bait. We never saw a bear for two days, right? So Mm -hmm. I was done. All right, no more of that. So anyway, I I started getting really remote. I mean, one location in particular, the last time I baited it, I literally took 4,900 pounds. And I know I took 4,900 pounds because I weighed every single bag, and I did that for the horses. So that particular location was, I think it was seven miles of a closed gated road. Uh, Not closed to motorized vehicles, but gated. All night was shuttling to a giant pile. And then at first light, we would ride the horses in. And then at the end of this location, there was trails that took off from both sides of this dead end road. So one was about two miles and one was about a mile and a half. So it's straight up three days of working your tail off. But once that's done, then it's heaven, right? I I never bait again. I let those bears get their pecking order, and I would there I would just ride my big wheel in and uh, sleep on a gorgeous ridge, and maybe five, six, seven hundred yards from the bait, and I would just slip in and out when the wind was right. You know, I made sure that the that's another thing that I just don't do. Like, I, I'm not, I'm gonna have it dialed i don't care if i have to wait till it's nine o'clock at night i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go up there until the thermals are the way i want them right and often there's already bears there but um again to try to get consistent big bears you can't you just can't take any chances right um but anyway so that particular spot well once my boy jess um was to the age where he could hunt it wasn't uh it wasn't reasonable for me to get him in there to even hunt. You know, he couldn't ride it, but these trails are gnarly. So he wasn't going to ride a motorcycle in, and I wasn't going to, you know, try to, you know, pump him, put, put him on the back of my bike. It was tough enough just getting in there anyway. But so I changed things up. Again, I just really started studying, you know, oh, snow and areas I could loop around and get back into. I mean, that's one of my advices is just – Back in the day, it's like okay, I got to I got I got to be close to town because I got to bait every four days. Well, that's a lot of money and time and fuel and 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 you're just educating the bears and there's just no point to it to me. So I figured out a way to be very efficient um, with really the limited number amount of time. I mean, usually it didn't take long. You know, I kind of you know the. There's times where I'd see a bear and I'm like, I'm hunting that bear. And then it would take time or whatever, but, um, it's very efficient the way I do it. And, and the fact is, you know, with kids and life, and I just don't have time to run up every, you know, four or five days and, and even really have a lot of time to hunt. So I'm going to put all my odds in my favor to see a lot of bears and see a lot of activity and love bears. Like I mentioned earlier, it's like big bears and, and, you know, antelope you know, blind for whatever reason, that's what really gets your, your, your my heart pounding. But anyway, um, so I started finding new areas that were just more accessible, but I still had the mindset of getting where, you know, there isn't going to be hound hunters and just likely no hunters. So at that point I started driving, you know, four and a half hours and really it turned out to be amazing. I was really focusing on just getting my kid a bear, but having a good experience. And we pulled some crankers out of that country um and we were only half mile from a road you could drive on yeah so so that was really neat again it was just remote driving that extra distance doing that extra due diligence as to okay this you know this particular area you can't access there's only one way to access it because of the snow now once the snow melted off and you know the roads opened up and you know, pretty soon it started getting busier with people, but by then i was I was long done hunting, you know
1: that's a huge little bit of advice. Um, uh, okay, well, let's dig in on your actual bait and then uh skim over anything you don't want to give information on and I respect that. um when you're uh, acquiring uh stinky stuff, you know, ground squirrels, carp, whatever, are you freezing it? um are you uh, aging it burying it in the ground and then picking up out of the ground. And then when you take it to the bait site, when you say you bury it, like, are you burying it, uh, at the bait site? Are you hanging some of them? Like what's your a plan of attack for that?
2: Yeah. As far as that, you know, I used to use, uh, you know, salmon scraps and different stuff from stores and salmon was always an awesome deal. Cause you could put it in the ground for a year and it comes out and it's just like this paste. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'd get little rips of, you know, material or whatever, and I could hike around in different areas and just take a little rag and wrap it around it, and then hang it on a limb or whatever. Um, but you know, Sam, it's kind of iffy. So I haven't done that for a lot of years, but what I found was, you know, like rock chucks and, and ground squirrels. And like I said, I'll take my bow out and Jess and I'll go out and just whack the heck out of them. Um, usually you get, you know, depending on the size of the rock chuck or whatever, you know, it doesn't end up being a maybe a 15-pound bucket or 20-pound or something. But um, as far as my specific bag, you know, you, you want some sort of good heavy canvas bag, um, not burlap because it pretty much rots through in time. But in short, I'll have my bucket, and I'll have this bag that's basically, you know, a little bigger than the bucket, and I'll stick it in it and fold it over. I'll put three or four rock chucks in there with, you know, 10 ground squirrels, um, dump a little water in it. Um, I, I I put a lanyard on it. Um, so basically I tie that bag up and then I get a, you know, 12 inch piece of rope and I'll tie it to the bag and I'll just tie a loop on it, which makes for quick access when you're having to pop that lid open, you know, (laughs) as you're, as you're gagging. So yeah, yeah, I think it's, uh, definitely advantageous to, uh. Uh, bury it you know you want the lid at least you know eight inches in the ground so it's containing that scent so dog's not digging it up or whatever but you know i have a hole in back in my backyard there behind my garage so i'll dump a few buckets in there and and bury them up um again you know you got the bag that's when you're ready, you know, you just pop it open. I've already got my rope over the limb. Obviously another very important factor that I learned (laughs) is you have to get that bag where a bear can't get to it and a bear can get to about anything. So pretty much I'm looking at a, you know, a bigger Ponderosa or something with a big limb that I can throw that rope up and over. And so I'll have my rope ready to pull. So I'll pop that lid quickly tie um, well, another thing I do too, which I think is important, is so if you can imagine the bag, it's tied. I have a lanyard to it, and then I'll get a, a, a black trash bag, and I'll cut a corner of the trash bag off. So basically, I have a uh, I have kind of a tri- uh, a triangle that's basically a hood. So at the point of that triangle, I'll pop a hole, and I'll feed that little lanyard through it. Then I'll push the sides of the trash bag down over the stink bag a couple reasons is i mean in time it pretty especially if it's on horses and stuff it splashes and but there is kind of a little layer of protection when you're reaching in to pull that lanyard out most more importantly it acts as a hood a rain hood so you basically have a hood over your stink so the rain and snow it's not soaking out and raining out your stink bag i'll also put a small piece of uh, plastic in the bottom of the bag, so it holds moisture there, right? So it doesn't just drip out and dry. It's actually sitting in uh, a bit of a bag inside the the canvas bag. So I have the hood on top, keeps the rain off, and of course, when it's cooler, the sun hits it, it black bag will warm up, and in theory, warm up your stink to get the you know juices flowing a little bit quicker. Uh, when it's still cold in this spring so again pop that lid it's the last thing I do right before I leave I got my trail dug out I've got every pine cone off of the trail I'm you know 120 yards away from the bait in my little spot I can kick back and watch bears and the big ones come in because they they think you're not there because you're not there you know you don't have wind swirling around from a tree stand right on top of it you're in a location where you already know the wind's not going to change, and I'm sitting waiting, and here they come. But um, so that's the last thing I'll pull up is the stink. You know, once I got that up, tied off again, I, I'll put it about 10 feet off the ground. You know, a bear can't jump up to it. A bear's not going to climb up the tree and slide down the rope because a bear's going to take it. You know, if a bear can get to it, he's going to take it.
1: Oh, yeah, so for sure. So we were talking a ton of bait. I mean, I'm assuming there's some carbohydrates in there, breads, donuts, what have you. Are you just saturating it with powdered sugar to kind of keep it from molding? Or what's your best practice there?
2: Yeah, well, through the years when I first started, literally, I was like the king dumpster diver. It didn't matter, you know, from the donut shops <laughs> to the bakeries to the, I mean, pretty bad, really. But I was having fun doing it. I mean, I remember one year I got this pallet of freaking chicken legs.
1: Oh God.
2: Needless to say, and it was in boxes. I, I put it in cardboard boxes. Well, I didn't, I ended up getting stuck and not being able to go. So these chicken legs were in the back of my truck for like five days. <laughs> Needless to say, I finally got up there. And my neighbors hated me and I started pulling those boxes and literally, you know what a wet box does? It just falls apart. Uh... So now I've got hundreds of pounds of rot and chicken's the worst as far as the smell. So literally, I ended up having my sleeping bag. I ended up pushing these chicken legs into my sleeping bag, drug them down the hill, and dumped them out. But anyway, so through the years, I've used anything and everything to bait. But once I started utilizing horses, then it's really limiting. You know, Of course, I used a lot of fry grease, which is great for them to come in and get them on their feet and run grease trails around, and the other bear follows it in. I mean, I think that all uh, you know, holds value. But to me, the stink's most important and not having an option with horses you know grease is just flat messy anybody that's baited a ton with grease the back of their truck's a big grease pit and it's just a mess um we all had those explosion buckets and soaked in grease and but once i did the horses i pretty much just went to uh you know bakery goods they love it um and often years i had big donut connections and different stuff but anyway in later years i lost a lot of those things and it ended up kind of being bred so like you mentioned with brown sugar or, or powdered sugar i definitely think uh that's vital if that's what you have not only for you know flavor to some degree i guess um but more importantly some kind of a preservative you know mm-hmm. with the sugars in it to kind of you know hold back the mold a little bit and so on and so forth but yeah i use uh the bread which is great especially with horses you know 60 70 pound bags weigh them all so they're even and i've got a mountain of trash bags and it's just kind of a you know walk the horses in load them and go and again it's days of hiking but it's it's a lot of fun but so that's kind of it yeah bread donuts sweets uh uh, powdered sugar regular sugar and i'll do layers you know We'll put layers down and sprinkle it out and just kind of keep building it up. Um, and then the stinks. So I'm pretty simpleton now as far as what I use. Well,
1: that's stink incredible. Bag. Stink
2: bags are vital, <laughs> preservatives in the sweets. You know, pump sprayer just to, I mean, I use vanilla and a lot of different extracts and I make up this awesomely sweet concoction. And then I just pump spray the heck out of it. You know, I'll try to get into areas where it won't get rained out up under a stump. And, you know, and I'll hike 200 yards and douse an area and I'll spray my way back a little bit for trails. And really just when I leave, man, there is scent flying, you know. And I just don't think it takes takes long for those bears to get in there. And like I mentioned, that big bear finally finds it. And, of course, he, they'll hoard it and uh, – that big bear comes in 15, 20, 30 times, he's going to, his guard is consistently going down. It's not natural, you know, and I think animals know that. It's like antelope coming into a water hole. That's danger. That's why they're on pins and needles. And I don't think that's necessarily because they're being, they know they're being hunted by us. It's just instinctual, you know.
1: Yeah.
2: And bears are the same way. But once a big bear's come in 20 times or more and finally you slip in when the wind's right and you have everything to your advantage you you got a good crack at getting in and getting an arrow on them for sure
1: such good information russ i mean you're seriously showing your cards and that's cool i don't know anyone else who really does it the way you do you know a lot of outfitters they they get the bears trained to you know them coming in every day just putting enough food in once it gets hit, just enough for bears to be in a hurry or have urgency to get there first or it's going to be gone. And they'll do a honey burn every time they go there and switch out their cards. And I'm just as guilty. Um, I've tried it all except for your your take. And I really, man, I'm thinking about this year going to one bait site only. And um, And what I want to do is answer somebody's question with this. He says, How about a day in the life such as 5 a.m. to dark in a new area? How do you guys get it done without any target bear previous knowledge of the day today of the indigenous bears? So I think for me, especially this year, I'm really busy this spring. I usually hunt so much in the bear spring season that it's ridiculous. But this year I don't have that time. So I will try to do a Russ Meyer bait set this year where I can find an area. That and I kind of have an area already in mind, and I can tell you right now, Russ, I can't get there till probably mid-May at the earliest, but that's okay. Uh And I can do some spot and stock in and around that area until it opens up, and then we're gonna get horses. My dad's got horses, and we're gonna we're gonna bring in the Russ Meyer payload, and we're gonna set that up. We're gonna get some stink. We're gonna do that. But what I, how I like to hunt this area is that the backside of this whole drainage is phenomenal spot in stock I've killed a lot of bears back there so I will literally go back to my glass and spots and I will stock put stocks on bears I do want to say we haven't said this Russ but finding a bear through your binos guys is not that hard like in fact I will find bears every day but getting two bears because they don't hold still is really hard like I would say that most of my stocks aren't ruined by the wind but just by the fact that the bear isn't there by the time I get there
2: 100%. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. The, the, the finding those feed locations is vital, whether it's an, an onion field or whatever. And you talk about time of day, mornings are always tough. Mornings to me, so many times, like you said, about the time you get there, eight o'clock, whatever, that bear is already feeding to bedding. You know, that time of year, they're sleeping way more than they're eating. So, first light, you'll still find them out. With what I found, those big bears, they're heading to bedding pretty early. So I tend to focus my hunt, like when I want to try to get that bear, in the evenings. They they typically will come out, you know, with enough time to uh, to get on them. So that's you know my thought on that is, like you mentioned earlier, have an expansive areas to glass, be be patient and methodical. There's a reason he's there, and get over there. You know, often I'm packing in with all my stuff. Once I find that bear and then I'm sleeping up there and I'm trying to figure him out. But evenings are typically, in my opinion, um, the time you, I would focus on trying to actually, you know, get a, get an arrow on that bear.
1: But I agree. And so our bait site's going to be a spot where the wind will switch and it could only be 30 minutes before dark. But that's when I'll go – it'll be on my way out too. It'll be on my way out towards my truck. I'll be able to stop, get off, and head towards the bait where I can see. And the wind will be 100% not in the bear's favor. And then that – I call it ground and pound, Russ. I don't don't know. We figured that out a while ago where screw putting a tree stand in here. Let's just set this bait up where we can see. And we'll just sit four or 500 yards back and we obviously spend a lot of time making our approach very fast and efficient and quiet and uh, it's been an awesome it's actually more fun than sitting in a tree stand because you're kind of doing a little bit of both
2: Yep. no i agree it's it's a super effective way and and, and having it all set up is is obviously putting the odds in your favor literally like when you know I'll go up, I'll take maybe a little hoe and a little rake, and I'll literally have the trail to where I want to get to. I can see the bait here, I'm hidden, I'm up, I'm there, and I'm popping up at, you know, 20 yards and quiet as heck. Um, one thing to consider, too, as far as canyons, in my opinion, is when you talk about the thermals, it's, it's it's a bit of a bummer to me sometimes when literally the thermals are just in such a way that I only have literally a half an hour before i'll hang out a quarter mile away and then i'll slip in once the wind changes so considering that's important i think in that you know considering a, 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 a an easterly face canyon obviously the sun's going to shade that canyon faster than a west-facing canyon the thermals are going to change earlier as the sun goes down in in a in a darkened canyon obviously
1: that's a pro tip right there
2: so that's a good tip right there for sure um obviously the consistency and another thing i mean a lot of guys will hunt from the top you know Mm. i don't like hunting from the top i don't like hunting from the top i i either want to be in in a canyon with the topography or or timber pockets or such a way um that likely the bears are going to be coming in from a from above you obviously you know the thermal starts sucking down that's normally the time when those bears are going to come in in the evening you know if you're in an area that's you're hunting bears that aren't bait smart um i mean to me eight o'clock is the time period where you're gonna see start seeing big bears most people most baits it's literally you're praying that that big bear comes in and you can still see your pins
1: absolutely that's
2: pretty normal but with the way i've done it for years eight o'clock period is the time and it's just it's crazy how consistent it's been even in different areas Um, now granted you're still gonna you know through the course of it i know i've left scent i know that big bear you know i hunted this one bear i called one eye for three years and he finally messed up it was right in the evening it was a stock bait but that particular set i turned it into a stand bait but i didn't slip down there until the thermals were just right and sure enough that giant sucker came in and i had you know Ten minutes of legal shooting, like probably less, probably five, and he just literally came in and and I zorked him. Came in like he didn't have a care in the world. But anyway, you get into those areas, you get remote where you, and that's another thing to touch on. I want to focus on areas where these bears aren't hitting four other baits because the other hey, dude's educating the other guy's educating them. It don't matter if it's your bait or his bait; they're educated. Uh, I, I don't want to hunt educated bears, so that's a not only hounds. But I don't want to, why not drive an extra two hours or whatever, whatever extra work you have to put into it, they're not bait smart. And Amen obviously that. that's, that's how you're going to, you know, you can bait anywhere and kill a bear, granted, you know, but you're likely going to kill 150 to, you know, 180 pound bear. And one thing to talk about too, I want to be efficient early on. In my opinion, either you're going to, do everything right, and you're going to catch that big bear, and you probably have multiple big bears, whatever. You're going to catch a big bear and have an opportunity. If you blow it, he sees you, scents, smells you, you leave scent remnants. Again, going back to trail cameras, going up every night, checking your trail camera, leaving scent everywhere, makes zero sense to me. So you're either going to kill that big bear because you're going to trick him and he's not going to think you're there, and he's going to have come in a bunch of times, and then you're going to get him. At some point, later on, when those big boars get dumb in the rut, that that's your next that's your next opportunity to shoot a big bear mother nature's taken over and he has his nose you know up, up a sow's butt and he'll give you an opportunity i'm gonna put my cards putting all my favor right out of the gate and get that big sucker
1: <laughs> definitely do i don't take too much more of your time so let's finish with this russ i posted something at some point and i just said straight up this is where you should shoot a bear middle of the middle and it's my opinion uh, with a bow. I just think broadside, middle of the middle, it's weird. But that's my experience in shooting. So what are, what's your favorite angle to take on a bear? Where should guys aim? I think bears are deceiving not only by size, but we're talking mature caliber bears in this conversation. So where does a guy aim with a bow?
2: Yeah, that's, a, that's an awesome question. Um, as you know, bears are funky shaped. And they have long hair and it's hard to find the defined features, especially, you know, it looks like a black blob or a brown blob, especially in the evening. And it's Mm -hmm. shaded and it's especially hard too. are they actually broadside or are they kind of, you know? Yeah. uh, Oh, yeah. So I'm always, I'm always trying to see the front leg and just evaluating it from there. I'm a broadside guy. I don't care what animal it is. I don't like quartering away shots. I don't like quartering. I'm a broad. I just like broadside shots. Same with bears. Um, now, obviously, with bears, it's pretty controlled. Uh, if you're in a tree stand and you have a 15, 20 twenty-yard shot, you can push it with your confidence level. But I like you, middle, and middle. I'm I'm probably going to be a little bit forward of middle and middle, but not much. Definitely, bears' vitals do set back. Um, if you're focusing on that shoulder and they're slightly quartered away, you know, behind the shoulder, you're setting yourself up for lots of tracking and potentially a lost bear. Like, as you probably know, man, you really pray for that death moan. When I don't hear a death moan, I get worried. Absolutely, you know, bears, bears, I've seen bears where you think they're just done and... You know, the way their chest is, their shoulders, the way they stand, you can't quite tell the way they're standing because it's just a blob. I've taken guys and tracked a lot of bears. I fortunately haven't had too too, too much uh, uh, lost opportunity or, or, or lost bears, but it's really easy to do. So being more to middle of middle, in my opinion, is definitely a good thought, but Get them on their broadside, because they could be slightly quartered, and you're thinking you're middle and middle, and guess what? You missed the lung, and you're solid gut, and chances are you're not going to find that bear.
1: Just that's, that's a fact. They are
2: tough. If you don't double lung a bear, they're hard to find. Period. If you don't lung a bear, you're going to have a really, a really hard time finding that
1: bear. No doubt, Russ. Thanks for thanks for your time, man. Um, Where where can people check out your website and as well as follow you on social?
2: Yeah, yeah. As far as uh, our website, it's um, it's outdoors-international.com. Again, we facilitate fishing adventures around the world. Uh, I know there's a lot of DIY guys, you know, that listen to your podcast. But like I tell everybody, it's like, guess what? You want to go to some amazing spot and stock black bear hunts in Canada? You got to have a guide. And of course, we offer lots of unguided stuff and really anything you want my instagram r meyer archery yeah r meyer r meyer archery and then our company outdoors international on the on the instagram and of course facebook's just just my name but yeah if we could help you with the hunt that would be awesome appreciate the conversation i guess we went pretty good
1: oh we did but i tell you i don't know anybody better than russ meyer when it comes to humility and consistent success Uh, and that's, I'm just honored to have you on, Bud. I think you're one of the best guys in the industry and the realist. So keep doing what you're doing, man.
2: I appreciate it, Dan. Likewise, I've always had a lot of respect for you. And I think we definitely share a, uh, I think we're cut from the same cloth when it just comes down to just the pure love of, uh, the outdoors, of course, and then the flight of the arrow and, and just, you know, doing it, doing it the hard way, man. We don't we don't bow hunt because it's easy and it's just something we can't help It's like i've always said it's like i can't help it i'm just it's what i am it always blows me away i meet these guys that you know they're just hardcore into bow hunting out of the blue in five years and then all of a sudden they're they're off bass fishing or doing something else i'm like what how's that possible (laughs) i don't know yeah yeah we'll keep doing it i know as long as we can I i was up snowshoeing yesterday we Put in about seven miles. We're going to do that death hike with Exo Mountain Gear in March. So I'm I'm pretty motivated and stoked about that. So
1: and that doubles as a wolf hunt, right?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to be a, a wolf deal. Uh, Steve and I were talking about different locations and stuff. So
1: uh, come up to my neck of the woods. We got plenty of wolves, man.
2: Yeah, no kidding.
1: Definitely in North Idaho. Is, uh full of – we didn't even talk about wolves, which, thank God, because I always bring them up on here. Um, people probably tired of hearing about it. But uh, Russ Meyer, one of the best dudes in the archery game. And uh, tell you what, tell your son hi for me, and I can't wait to follow along your adventures this spring. And uh, I think guys will be getting a hold of you with their questions. So I apologize in advance, man. But uh, you're one of the best experts when it comes to DIY bear hunting, and uh, appreciate your time.
2: All right. Thanks so much, Dan. You take care, buddy. All
1: right, Russ. Take care, brother. Well, guys, that was a great podcast, and Russ, thanks again for coming on. A lot of good information there. So Washington State, you can actually kill two bears, uh, I believe, on the east side of the state and two bears on the west side, but that's fall only. But season opens up August 1st in many units, so keep that in your back pocket, but they do not have an over-the-counter spring. Oregon does. Idaho does. Wyoming does. Montana does. Alaska, obviously. Uh, The Montana deal, no bait. Same with Oregon, but really good spot and stock opportunity. I encourage everybody to go bear hunting, get some of these bears killed. Uh, these bears live a long time, and they re- reproduce. You know, they usually have twins, where like an elk probably won't have twins, and they live a longer lifespan. So yeah, there's lots of bears, and they're hard on calves and fawns, and you can't convince me otherwise. So I encourage everybody get fired up about bears. It's just one of the best adventure hunts out there, and it's pretty affordable especially just do it yourself, hop in the truck, drive over here and get after it. As far as call to actions go, we have 90 days to freedom. That's a DIY home gym workout program. All you need is a sandbag, make your own sandbag, pair of dumbbells, maybe a barbell if you got it but you don't have to, a pull up bar would be perfect. And then some sort of monostructural piece like a rower or a skier or a bike or just running. Uh, or you can do calisthenics like with your body weight push-ups and burpees to sub out but we can scale all the workouts up and down and I've looked at other programs out there they're just overpriced bottom line so give this one a shot it's pretty affordable download to your computer you have it there's no renewals and it's got it's backed by private video so you can watch what we're doing if you don't understand the lingo so that's my last little bit, get signed up for Elk Shape Camp. We do have a discount code for first responders, save $150 off registration, use the discount code first responder, all one word. And then if you're not a first responder and you want to save $50 off registration, by all means use the discount code Lakewood50, that's L-A-K-E-W-O-O-D-5-0 and that will get you $50 off and that's thanks to our friends at Lakewood Products. And so that's what we got going on have a great week y'all appreciate you tuning in you have a lot of choices out there we we definitely know that and we appreciate you tuning into this podcast it's a blue collar podcast that breaks down public land elk hunting and more personal development through discipline delayed gratification and being accountable to yourself peace